Welcome to Conversations at Mount Vernon's Washington Library. The Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon serves as the premier resource for all who are interested in the study of George Washington and the revolutionary and founding eras. Every year, the library hosts numerous scholars who share our dedication to generate and disseminate new knowledge about all things Washington. The library's founding director, Dr. Douglas Bradburn, has the opportunity to sit down with these scholars to explore their research, and we are so excited to share those conversations with you. Today's guest is Dr. Susan Dunn. Dr. Dunn is the Massachusetts Professor of Humanities at Williams College and is author of numerous history books exploring topics ranging from the American and French revolutions to World War II. Dr. Dunn was also a guest speaker at the 2016 George Washington Symposium at Mount Vernon, which explored topics of Washington's presidency. Today, Dr. Dunn discusses her early books on Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the importance of the Bill of Rights into the 20th century, and the importance of public education to creating good citizens. And now, Drs. Dunn and Bradburn. Well, welcome everybody. This is Doug Bradburn. I'm the founding director of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. And here we are having another conversation. Uh, in, in this case, you're in for a special treat. I'm here with Dr. Susan Dunn. Susan, welcome to Mount Vernon. Thanks so much, Doug. It's quite an honor to be back uh, at this very special, sacred place. That's very nice of you to say. We met the first time uh, when we were doing a conference in honor of, uh, uh, of Jim Burns. Yes who had passed away maybe about a year before right. that conference. Uh, and that was a special time uh, when a lot of his old mentors and colleagues got together yeah. and presented fresh work. And students. Uh, yeah. Ed Larson was here, and I heard your podcast with Ed. Oh, good. Great. Oh, good. Yeah, Ed's a lot of fun. Ed was one of our fellows here for a long time, so he was yes. haunting me in the halls uh, when we were first getting this building running here. He was a, he was a great person to lean on. And, uh, uh, yeah, th he always spoke so highly of, uh, of Jim Burns and, of course, yourself. That's so nice of him. So, like Ed, you are incredibly productive. You've written so many books, I can't read them all out here. Well, it's because there's nothing else to do in Williamstown but work. <laughs> it's a town of 6,000 people and 500 dogs, and you better work or else you're in trouble. <laughs> and you've been there since getting your Ph.D. in 73. Uh, That's right. From Harvard. I, I am now the um, old guard. No, the, as they used to say. You're the Massachusetts Professor of Humanities at Williams College. Uh, and I guess, you te do you teach in the leadership program at all, or are you all history? I am all leadership. Oh, you're all leadership. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I don't have a Ph.D. in history. Uh, oh, really? So I ah. am uh, in the lead new leadership studies program that was founded by Jim Burns, mm. James McGregor Burns, mm -hmm. and by his colleague, Al Gothos, right. who's now at the Jepson School yeah. of Leadership Studies at your neighboring University of Richmond. That's right. Now, Al is great as well. He's helped us out in our leadership programs here. Uh, well, it, it's it, it's my surprise then, I guess, that you don't have a PhD in history because you're a brilliant historian and you've won many, many awards in history. So you can uh, you can stick that in your in your uh, in your hat anytime you want. And I'm sure you've got an honorary doctorate somewhere. I have a real doctorate from Harvard. Yeah, well, right, it's in, right. It's in uh, French literature. In French literature. Ah, well, that, so that explains the French, uh, the French side, because your early work is in the French Revolutionary era. That's right. That's uh, what convinced me to move to the Founding Fathers. 
Well, let's talk about that. So you did, was it the book Sister Revolutions, French Lightning, American Light that made you see the American light when you were? It was first uh, after an earlier book called The Deaths of Louis the Sixteenth, mm. Regicide and the French Political Imagination. Mm -hmm. And um, after I wrote that book about this uh, very bizarre foundational act of the French Revolution to guillotine the king, yeah which they called regicide. However, if you believed in divine right monarchy, which many French people did, it wasn't regicide, it was deicide, mm. it was the killing of God. Mm. So it was a very transgressive act. And after I wrote that, I taught a course with a colleague in American history, mm. Robert Dalzell, who in fact wrote a book about Mount Vernon. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. That? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And we taught a book, uh, a course on um, saints and martyrs, uh. and he did Washington and Lincoln, and I did Louis the Sixteenth and Joan of Arc. Oh, amazing! It was a nice seminar, but that was my first exposure ever to George Washington. What a great class! I would have loved to take that class. That sounds fantastic. And what was even greater for me, it was a transformative mm. experience mm. because I discovered George Washington, yeah. and uh, and that that really marked a, a, a 180 degree shift in my intellectual interest. Mm. Then I wrote a book called Sister Revolutions, yeah. French Lightning, American Light, which I compared the two the ideas of the two yeah. revolutions, not so much the events, mm. but the thought and values and principles that were, be that were behind them, that motivated the leaders of both revolutions. And the bottom line is that the Americans were brilliant. Mm. They, they couldn't have been more brilliant and, and politically astute, militarily astute but also so morally grounded. Mm. And the French could not have been more different. Mm. Absolutist, totalitarian, just berserk. Yeah. And so I fell in love with, with the Americans. Yeah. I fell in love with Madison's rationality. Mm. I read Tocqueville, Democracy in America, and that also was absolutely phenomenally brilliant for me. Mm. And. Um, and I also wanted to study more the, the principles of the American founding and how grounded they are in, in Judeo-Christian morality. Mm. Interesting. And, um, and that w became very, very meaningful me to me, not just to study history or political science, but to understand the greatness of our democratic system of self-government mm. that Jefferson talks about so much. And I, I do really believe that that should be the foundation of the of public education. Yeah. We should, public education for me, elementary school and high school, is to create good citizens of our mm. amazing self-governing republic. Experiment, you know, right? I mean, it's, it's, still, it's still a challenging experiment, and if the yes. citizenry isn't grounded in the principles That's behind exactly. it, That's then what I'm afraid of. Yeah, they will, will wander. Uh, it, well, I mean, we could go on about that. My, I, I, I share that belief very much. It's one of the reasons I went into education, uh, and it's. I mean, I've written as you have on citizenship uh, as well, in the, both in the historical perspectives and in other, other ways. Um, well, it's interesting, Susan, because we, we were joking before we came on the air about how you don't remember what you did in some past books, but you clearly remember Sister Revolutions, and uh, <laughs> uh, you know that. You know, one of the things is. I'm very interested in uh, comparative revolutionary studies, not only the American and French and Haitian, 
but the Latin American revolutions. And I've always thought a great uh, a book of uh, essays on you know comparing Washington with Bolivar and Napoleon and Toussaint and these other revolutionary leaders would be a lot of fun to you know to dig into their their similarities and their differences uh, along the way. But I've always found that uh, French historians typically aren't really interested in the American Revolution. They they're a bit chauvinistic when it comes to their national history. But uh, you moved from France to the United States. Is that uh, is pretty unusual? Well, as I said, I just yeah. fell in love with the Americans, and I felt that yeah. after a certain number of years studying French literature and French history of ideas, French Revolution, there was no point anymore. Mm. Because, frankly, I felt there was nothing uplifting, nothing for me to learn. Mm. Um, I, you know, I've been in school since 1950, since mm. kindergarten, mm. and mm. part of the purpose of uh, spending a life in acad academia is not only to impart what I know and, and a certain enlightenment tradition to mm. new generations, because mm. that's what's so sacred, but it's also to some extent for self-enhancement, for my mm. own good to yeah. learn more. And there was simply nothing more of value to <laughs> learn yeah. from the French. It's the Americans and, and the British, our, our Magna Carta and uh, Anglo-Saxon principles of uh, justice, equality, freedom under law, and especially due process. These values are so precious, mm. and also the Enlightenment values of human rationality. Um, I don't want to lose that. I don't want our civilization to lose these amazing principles, because in today's world, you th there, there seems to be a risk to yeah. Enlightenment principles, more theocracy, uh, more tribalism. Mm -hmm. um, th this is a tremendous danger and threat to um, to Western humanist civilization. There seems to be a trend uh, today to emphasize um, uh, there's an allure to power. I guess there's always an allure of power, but there's an allure of, of people who can get things done and as opposed to thinking about um, people who will morally try to do things the right, uh, for the common good, for the right, in the right way. That's, that's exactly what I was writing about my last book. Mm is about uh, Franklin Roosevelt. And now I can't wait to go back to the Founding Fathers. Yeah, but, well, uh, let's jump to, let's talk about the Roosevelt uh, work a little bit. Um, because uh, one of the things that's so delightful about your your CV and uh, in, in your biography, and it, you've explained, I think, why, because of your passion, uh, not only to continue to educate yourself and excite yourself, but a lot of academics, you know, it's such a special... We're also specialized that, uh, you know, dipping our toe into other fields is a very uh, treacherous thing because we don't want the other specialists in that field to sort of make fun of us and think we're interlopers. But you jump around uh, wildly here from France to the Americas and then into the 1940s with the Roosevelt work that you've done. Now, where did that uh, interest come from? Um, the founding, I, I think I explained why I'm so yeah. interested in, in our foundational principles. My companion James McGregor Burns was a Roosevelt yeah. scholar. Yeah, and the lion and the fox. The lion and the fox. Roosevelt, yeah. the lion and the fox, which still is, I think, mm. the definitive work. Mm. Although nothing is definitive, <laughs> but uh, it's a great book. And uh, his second book that got the Pulitzer Prize, Roosevelt, the Soldier of Freedom. Mm. So um, when I first started seeing Jim around 1992, he mm. was 
writing uh, a book called The Three Roosevelts about Fra uh, Theodore Franklin and Eleanor. Mm. And he actually didn't want to finish it. Mm. He wanted to start a book about Clinton. <laughs> and he had interviewed both Bill and Hillary. And so he asked me if I would uh, be willing to finish The Three Roosevelts for him. Mm. And I said, I had no, absolutely no background. <laughs> and I said, of course, sure, why not? <laughs> oh, I love the American word, sure. <laughs> Roger Cohn in the New York Times had a, uh, an op-ed about the word sure. Uh -huh. We Americans say sure. It's so optimistic and it just reflects who we are. Yeah. We're open and positive and hopeful about the future. Um, I like that. I also <laughs> looked that up. That's great. Yeah. And um, so we wrote that book. And then I did become more interested in FDR. And also, do you know, I think it is the continuation of the founders, mm. that the founders and what I'll be speaking about today and the little article I have in the Mount Vernon magazine is about Washington, reason, and happiness. Mm. And happiness, Washington brilliantly defined as vir virtue, a combination of virtue and happiness, of good citizenship when we all work toward the common good, mm. that real that will truly make us happy and make our uh, our society, our communities happy, and and that works up to a certain extent. Uh, for instance, let me just give an example of the Bill of Rights. Our Bill of Rights is uh, rights against government, against government in intrusion. The First Amendment reads, right. Congress shall make no law. Yeah. These are rights against government infringement on our innate, inalienable rights. But in 19, when was it, 44, I think, FDR said that's not enough mm. because necessitous men are not free men. Mm. And you also have to have to be happy you can't be happy and, and a good citizen if you're hungry, if you're not well-educated, if you don't have a good job, yeah. uh, if you don't have security in old age, if you don't have some way of maintaining your health, if, if you don't have a right to some vacation time. So FDR propounded a, what he called an economic bill of rights, mm -hmm. which was very uh, idealistic. We certainly don't even have the fulfillment of that today. But it was an acknowledgment that rights against government aren't enough. For happiness, we need a little bit more. So I saw the, um, the what, collaboration, in a way, mm. uh, of Washington's hope for citizens' happiness and a step further mm. in FDR's Economic Bill of Rights. And then it goes on. It goes on, um, perhaps, with the Great Society, mm -hmm. with Medicare, Voting Rights Act, Civil Rights Act. And then it goes maybe a step further, gay marriage. Um, the, the, our revolution uh, for equality, happiness, due process is an ongoing process. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there's the meaning of the meaning of citizenship itself has changed so much. Uh, to be, on the one hand, to be more inclusive of who really can participate in the public realm. Um, but on the other hand, also thickening uh, in, in the sense of what it, you know, what the what the com what you're expected to be able to get from the common, as well. So exactly. So so the, your your interest in Roosevelt you see as uh, as a, as an is part of that broader story of American um, Americans struggling with their experiment in democracy and self governance. Absolutely. 
Um, <clears throat> let's talk particularly about this book, 1940, FDR, Wilkie, Lindbergh, Hitler, The Election Amid the Storm. What, what about that election did you want to try to get across? Well, 1940, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big year. It's a big year. In the spring of 1940, Hitler crushes all the democracies of Western Europe, from Norway, uh, Denmark, the Netherlands, Belgium, and France, capitulates to Hitler two days before the GOP convention mm. in June 1940. And what is happened, and Great Britain is alone now in mm -hmm. Europe, standing yeah. alone against this Nazi army. And that, so what month is that in 40, you said? That France surrenders to yeah. Hitler in June. June, okay. Right. And so when the, the, you have your GOP convention, mm. and um, the front runners are all isolationists. Right, right. And um, beca uh, perhaps because of the war, the dark horse candidate is chosen, and his name is Wendell Wilkie. Mm. And he had been a Democrat, and he had never before in his life run for public office. Uh, he was the uh, president of a utilities holding company. Mm. Wendell Wilkie was A-plus in every possible way. And af after he lost the election in 1940 to FDR, he helped FDR with the war effort. Mm. They really agreed on the fundamentals, and, and, and Wilkie even embraced the New Deal. He just said that he could manage it uh, much better and much more economically. Mm. But what's happening in 1940 is that everything that we value most in our lives, every underpinning of en Enlightenment values, Judeo-Christian morality, every, everything is on the brink of total annihilation. Mm because of Nazi Germany, fascist Italy, and perhaps Japan. And um, there's a very powerful isolationist movement in this country. And you were mentioning before, Doug, that um, how important it is to keep our children, our young people, well informed about citizenship, because otherwise democracy, democracy yeah. in a way is fragile and yeah. we can lose it. And that was exactly what was happening in 1940 with the isolationist movement. Mm -hmm. um, many isolationists were well-meaning people who simply did not want to go through the mass senseless slaughter of World War I. Mm -hmm. um, but some were pro-fascist. Mm -hmm. And some were, uh, of course, many were anti-Semitic, like Lindbergh, who believed yeah. that the uh, Jews were pushing the country into the war along with the British. But many believed that democracy was finished. Yeah, yeah. That democracy was old-fashioned. Yeah. It was 18th century horse and buggy. Mm. And that the wave of the future was dynamic, mm. energetic. Yeah, efficient, efficient is the big word, right? Yeah. Fascism. And Charles Lindbergh's wife, Anne Morrow Lindbergh, actually published a short book in the fall of 1940, at the height of the election season, mm. And the title of her book is The Wave of the Future. Mm. And she argued that the wave of the future is fascism and yeah. that the quarrel in Europe, or more than quarrel, the war in Europe isn't between good and evil, but between the forces of the past mm. and the forces of the future. And we simply must adapt to the forces of the future. Mm. Well, this was complete insanity. And, <laughs> and she later apologized. Years later, she apologized for what she wrote, although her husband Charles Lindbergh never came close to an apology for the mm. horrible things that he wrote. 
But that's why 1940 is such an important year. Yeah. It's, a, it's a year of salvation, the, the beginning of, of the salvation of, of what I call Western humanist civilization. How would it have played, I mean, this is a counterfactual, which we all despise as historians at some point, but how would it have played out if Japan had not attacked Pearl Harbor? Great I mean, that's, question. that's 41. St- we yeah. finally are getting in. I mean, the British had been alone for a year and a half by that point. We were slowly getting in, yeah. and, and I just finished a manuscript about the last two months of 1940 and the first three months of 41, mm. which I call FDR's third hundred days. Well, that's because, good. I like that. Because historians, as you know, consider Franklin Roosevelt's first hundred days. There's so many books on the first hundred days. <laughs> that's the beginning of his first term in 1933, right. when he passes important economic legislation to save the economy from the Depression. And then historians call the second hundred days the summer of 1935. They call that the second New Deal with Social Security mm-hmm. um, and other uh, New Deal programs. But that Social Security especially is and the Wagner Act. Uh, collective bargaining for mm-hmm. workers. So, so I'm going to make the argument that the most important hundred days were the third hundred days mm. in late 40, early 41, when in fact he starts preparing for war. Okay. Yeah. And he has to very, very slowly make preparations and very, very slowly educate and persuade Americans that sooner or later we might have to be involved in war. But to your question about Pearl Harbor, I don't know. Yeah, it's hard to say how long it would have been. But he made, when did he make the Arsenal of Democracy speech? That's that would have been December in that period. December 29, 1940. Yeah, so exactly. that's in this, sec- this that's third exactly hundred days, it. and that's the move and towards well, we're going to defend democracy that's it. however we can. The Arsenal yeah. of Democracy talk is um, yeah. the beginning of Lend-Lease. Yeah, right. When we are going to give Great Britain everything they need to fight, we will pay for it every penny, right. but they will fight and die and we will simply produce. Yeah, yeah. Well, that uh, that uh, that is uh, that is a crucial uh, moment in that in that story. Uh, now, he famously in the forty election, I think, all, the, the forty election is the one where he promised that he wouldn't be sending any American sons to die in foreign yes. foreign wars at yeah, Madison Square Garden or yes, wherever it was. Exactly. And, uh, and that was so. That was part of the, the at the very end of that election cycle, right? Those that, were real weasel words. Yeah. He promised in, in Madison Square Garden, again in Boston, in his late October. Well, but everything changes after we're attacked. I mean, you know, that... But that's a whole year yeah, later. Well, exactly. So he can, I think he can still live with that promise. I mean, it's a, he, you know, he didn't start it, I think is what he would say, of course. That's, that's yeah, the exactly side would say what he's he basically, would have said. Yeah, right. That's what he had in the back of his mind. Yeah. He said he could promise American mothers and fathers, I will not send your boys into foreign wars yeah. because he reasoned... That if we're attacked, it's no longer a foreign war. Yeah, right. But I think he knew he was being deceptive, but I think he also felt that the most important thing for a politician is to win the election, mm. no matter what. Mm-hmm. And he certainly was willing to use deceptive tactics. How close was that election in 40? Not close. Okay. So Wilkie, Wilkie ultimately petered out. He won 10 states, oh. and my students think that uh, FDR won... Um, how many states make up uh, uh, 48 <laughs> 30, 38 maybe? more yeah, yeah, <laughs> they, right. they think he made uh, 40 more they don't know <laughs> that we only had 48 <laughs> states then yeah that's funny so why uh, so was Lindbergh uh, was he 
I mean, I know he was the big American first guy in the 30s and all this, and but he wasn't uh, he wasn't a candidate for office. Uh, he, he wasn't running for the Republican primary or anything like that. So what was his kind of role? He was the spokesman for mm. the isolationist movement, okay. which was called the America First Committee. And mm -hmm. started off by undergraduates and undergraduates at Yale, including our future president, Gerald Ford, was there. Mm. Potter Stewart was one of the Yale students. Uh, the future president of Yale, Kingman Brewster, was one of the students who started America First. Mm. But then some of their parents got involved, and the parents were wealthy Midwestern industrialists. Mm -hmm. They put a lot of money behind this America First committee, yeah. and Charles Lindbergh became the spokesman. What's interesting about Lindbergh is that after, but first of all, he crosses the Atlantic, as we know, yeah. along with Jimmy Stewart in the great mm. movie, mm. in 1927. Mm. And then their baby is kidnapped. Yeah, and right, of course. They're so Lindbergh. hounded by 32, the press. That's exactly it. They're so right. hounded by the press that they leave the United States for Europe. Really? And when they're in Europe, in, uh, in England and then in France, um, Lindbergh visits Germany many, uh, many times, mm. and he becomes blindly intoxicated mm. by German advances in mm. aviation technology mm. and in weapons. And then when he comes back to the United States in 38, late 38, 39, yeah. he, he propounds that Hitler is uh, undefeatable, that it, the die is already cast. Yeah. Um, that he's so impressed by what he saw. He does believe in American preparation, however. And that's the one interesting thing, good thing that I can say about Charles Lindbergh, because he's the man I love to hate. <laughs> what, he, what he did is um, go to the White House and tell uh, people in the Roosevelt administration about these technical advances. Mm. And that started um, the NDAC, National Defense, uh, Aviation, <laughs> I'm not sure what the committee? AC were. Mm. National Defense Aeronautics Committee, yeah. perhaps. Yeah. Um, but that that starts um, all kinds of scientific experiments yeah. and, and, and scientific work for advancement in war technology. And that ultimately led to the Manhattan Project yeah. and to the atom so bomb. Well, there so you go. So, so in Lindbergh. a way, that's, that's <laughs> unintended that consequences. Exactly. Well, it, it, it you know the the Great Depression is such a traumatic uh, event that um, you know these two more modern ways of organizing the state and and power the, both the, the Soviet Union you know the the communist turn and then on the other hand the fascist you know the other side of the spectrum the fascist turn. Uh, I mean, they made democracies look like they couldn't handle crises, that they couldn't handle modern crises created by modern economic challenges. And, uh, uh, you know, so the defenders of democracy had very little evidence uh, at that point that they could do it, you know. At, at that point, you're right. But it's strange. I mean, well, it's not strange, but, it, you know, it, it is. Uh, I mean, you can read Machiavelli to, to know that if you want to get things done, you have to have a prince, but if you want liberty, you need to have a republic. And, uh, nice. and so this is an age-old conversation it's just we're so forgetful as a society yes, you know we're always yes. looking for the ends uh, you yes. know and and forgetting sometimes that the means can be more important and and jefferson spoke so yeah. often about um self-government yeah and and war what he called ward republics yeah every county had to be divided into <laughs> what he called hundreds <laughs> 
and I've never been entirely sure what a hundred is. If it's a hundred <laughs> acres or hectares. Yeah, that's a good question, but it's got some kind of old romantic notion of Anglo-Saxon democracy. I think, like the you know, that Jefferson is drawing on that somehow these these ancient Anglo-Saxons were able to organize the, a free republic on a small scale. On a small yeah. scale. And he loved the New England town. That's it, exactly. Yeah. The New England town meetings, he thought, yeah. were a model for Virginia. Yeah. But what is <laughs> the, the basic idea is that um, self-government has to take place at every level of society. Mm. Your local level townships, town meetings, and your county governments, your state governments, there has yeah. to be a, 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 an acquaintance with citizens' participation in self-government and power sharing at yeah. every level of society. Otherwise, you wind up with what Tocqueville called democratic despotism, mm. that you have central centralized power, but in the name of the people. Yeah, mob so rule. Mob, yes, exactly. So you have what China, the um, where no political dissent is permitted, yeah. or in Russia during their revolution. Yeah, and so right. Jefferson, between Jefferson... Um, Madison, Hamilton, and Washington especially, wow, what a quartet. Yeah, it's a theory for a living and moving democracy, which isn't, again, it's not about the ends, but it's about liberty in action. I mean, it's about yes, the life. That exactly. You're, you know, and, um, yes, it, you know, we, we're, of course, going to elect a new president very shortly, and you, and, and you wonder if the American uh, civilization has still got enough of the... Uh, the public engagement on all levels, you know, um, because I, I find it's astonishing to me. I've met a lot of great people come through Mount Vernon, really wonderful people, in all aspects of life: military, government, corporate, academia. But then our candidates at the very highest rung, hmm. they seem to be not our best, uh, or the we seem to be able to produce better folks. I mean, so there's something. I don't think that we're sick as a society, as some would say, but I do think there's a, a disconnect between. Uh, the greatness of the civilization and the political um, mechanisms in which people are drawn into politics. Yeah, that's you know. so true and, yeah. and, and it's so puzzling. And yeah. I tell my students, what was the population in the 13 <laughs> colonies? Yeah, 2.5 million. 2.5 at the revolution. million. Yeah. And that 2.5 million produced a Washington, yeah, a Madison, a sure Hamilton. Yeah. And then the, that's the first tier, and the second tier, a John Jay and a yeah. George Mason, and the list goes on. Patrick mm. Henry, yeah. John Adams, I don't want to leave out. Yeah. The list goes on and on. There used to be a commercial for some hamburger place, and somebody made fun of the, ham the, the poultry little hamburger and said, where's the beef? Yeah, that's right. So yeah. now I'm thinking, uh, exactly. where's the beef today? We have 330 million people, yeah. and uh, we don't have the quality of leaders that we had then. Yes, and we've been studying and writing about leadership now for you know for a long time, thanks to James McGregor Burns and your own work and many others. Um, but I don't know if it's having the impact that we might want. <laughs> you, uh, you know, I was just writing something about Eleanor Roosevelt, yeah. and she when it's funny in the fall of 1940 when Ann Lindbergh published her book The mm. Wave of the Future mm. Mm. Eleanor Roosevelt published her own short little book ah. called The Moral Basis of Democracy mm. interesting yeah and she said that Americans had to live a Christ-like way of life had to practice really? a Christ-like way of life and that meant gentleness mercy compassion generosity, 
a sense of responsibility for the neighbors we know and also for the people we don't know. Mm. And she said it wasn't, it's not a question of belief in his divinity, mm. but it is a question of practicing that kind of kind way mm. of life. Mm. That actually had a big impact on me. Um, and I think Eleanor Roosevelt was one of our great moral leaders. Mm. Um, there aren't many. There's Nelson Mandela and Martin Luther King mm. uh, and Gandhi. Um, I think perhaps to be a moral leader, you have to be outside of politics mm. because in politics, yeah. you inevitably have to dirty your hands yeah. and make make so many compromises, as all politicians have to. Well, Lincoln had a touch of that, but of course he becomes more of that after he's assassinated. I mean, he, he takes on that character of a, well, a martyr in this sense. And, exactly. And so the words that have those moral power that he was using a lot, you know, they come to mean more, I think, than, than even at the time people were recognizing. Exactly. Um, and I wish civic education in the schools today was not, is not just about teaching students about the three branches of government mm. um, and elections, but also um, about this moral basis mm. of democracy, too. Well, that, I mean, we need a strong advocate for it. I mean, it's it's challenging, I think, in a in an age of secularism. I mean, you clearly can talk about it. I think Washington is very useful in this regard because Absolutely. because he's not you know kind of an evangelical in your face, uh, uh, but he represents good moral character and integrity and trustworthiness and public service and and all these oh, ideals yes, that yes. you know. Uh, that you can use to try to get students, you know, on that plane of thinking. Yes, that's so important. Do you know at Williams when we have um, graduation speakers, mm. most of the time the graduation speakers advise the students to follow your passion. Right. They should advise them instead to give more thought to public service mm. because that's what Washington did. Yeah. We all know that as a young man, Washington was very ambitious and interested in his own self-aggrandizement. But then during the War for Independence, he realized that more was at stake than his own ego. Yeah. He said, we're fighting for the cause of mankind. And he turned that desire for self-aggrandizement uh, and turned his ambition into a concern for public service. Mm. And that's also the key to the greatness of the founders and what America should be. Yeah. I guess we're very idealistic, the two of us. <laughs> well, we are academics. What do you expect? But, uh, but you know, I, I, one of the ironies, I think, of the founding that doesn't, uh, I don't know if it's true or not, but it's something I've been arguing recently at a, at a big, uh, 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 we did a constitutional CLE, uh, Continuing Legal Education, with the Virginia Bar Foundation. And I was talking about checks and balances and separation of powers and how these principles are Part of the reasons they exist is because you you know because man can't be trusted with power, and so you you know you, that this notion that you know people are going to be corruptible, so you want to have lots of levers that you can control yes, exactly. and check and all those things. But one of the things that's that's strange about the way the Constitution is written is that the Article Two vests a lot of power in the presidency, and it's not defined particularly well. And as many framers noted at the time, that they would have paid more you know they would have 
uh, wouldn't have given the presidency so much power if they hadn't been thinking about George Washington in that role. So it's very, oh, that's so, 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 true. so yes. on the one hand, you have everybody's arguing, including Washington, that you can't trust people with power. On the other hand, they design an office with a with a with a person in mind that they all trust implicitly yes, exactly. as the one who's going to define that role. Exactly. And it's a such so a strange irony of the founding. That I article think, is you know. so interesting in the Constitution yeah. that defines the president's yeah. role because. The most space is taken up by the Electoral College. Yeah, and exactly. this is what they used to call a Rube Goldberg scheme for how to elect the president. But they weren't yeah. that sure about the yeah, role that the president would right. play. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and that is also, though, the greatness of Washington, yeah. that he had to create the presidency. Mm. And even more than that, he had to create a nation. Mm. There was no nation. Yeah. There was a piece of paper. And Washington's greatness is that he incarnated the new nation both symbolically and politically. Mm. Yeah, well, so, okay, so so you're turning back towards the founding now from having spent a number of books in, in 1940, 41. Uh, you did Roosevelt's Purge, which you won a great prize for that book, came out in 2010, how FDR fought to change the Democratic Party. Uh, now this book on the election and, and this book, the forthcoming book on the on the, the third hundred days, which sounds, fan memory. sounds <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> Um, but now you're 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 going back to the founding. Why, why are you heading back there? That's where my heart is. Mm -hmm. And um, and what I <laughs> see also in the founders that I respect so much, and that one doesn't see in so many of the unfortunate today totalitarian countries mm. and dictatorships in the world today. What you see in the founders is their intellectual humility. Mm. And be, they, they believe in reason. Reason is the mm. center of the Enlightenment, human reason. Yeah. We, we wipe the old slate clean. We erase the traditions, the superstitions, divine right monarchy. We start anew. What kind of social compact should we have? And we use human reason to discover it. Yeah. So they respect reason. But they're so brilliant that because they respect reason, they know that reason is not perfect, that reason is fallible, that they're not infallible. Mm. And because they're not infallible, they have to respect the opinions of others yeah. who disagree with them. Well, Washington advocates that, to be sure. There's a great series of letters between he and Jefferson and he and Matt, uh, Hamilton uh, in um, 92, in the fall of se uh, 1792, in which he's trying to get them to stop uh, thinking the worst of each other, essentially. You know, when yes. Hamilton and Jefferson are, are out there constantly complaining about the other. And, and he, Yeah, and he writes those great letters in which he calls for, you know, until the day when reason, when there's a standard where reason will be infallible, yes. we have to allow for differences of opinion. Yes. And mutual forbearances. Yes, and, exactly. Yeah, those, those phrases are brilliant. More charity for the yeah. opinions That's of right. others. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Those are the ones. Uh, brilliant letters. Brilliant. Uh, should be read by every person who becomes a new congressman. Yes. And uh, oh, then he says, until experience shall have shown us the right way, a middle course yeah. would be best. Yes. Listen yeah. to others. Respect others. And you remember Washington's rules of civility uh, yeah, that he copied when he was yeah. 14 or 16? Yeah. Yeah. They're also about respecting mm. other people, mm -hmm. respecting the opinions of others. Don't be too adamant in your yeah. own opinions. Yeah. And, uh, and this is their greatness, that yeah. they're open to compromise, they're tolerant. 
he, you know, he's in a, he has a, he doesn't have a formal education, and he's in, and he's thrust into a position of public command at such an early age. You know, where he fails uh, in the French and Indian War, where he's colonel of the Virginia Regiment. Uh, you know, at the age of 22, 23 years old. Yeah. Uh, so that's a that's a strange combination. You know, where you don't have the you don't have the education that the that the normal people who would be put in those positions are expected to have in the 18th century. And on the other hand, you've got responsibilities that are much larger than your experience would allow. And um, by the, so by the time in the presidency, he's such an old hand. I mean, he's he's like the wise man with these oh, words. Oh, that's the word for Washington, <laughs> yeah. the wise man. Yeah. He might not have gone to um, Princeton like Madison or yeah. Columbia. King's College, like Hamilton, or Harvard, like mm. John Adams. Where did Jefferson go? College of William and Mary. He did, yeah. That's why he didn't like it, so he started a new University college. University of Virginia. <laughs> but Washington. I'm a UVA grad, for the record. So. Oh, good. Oh, what a campus you've got, yeah. thanks to Jefferson. Um, but Washington's emotional intelligence. Yeah. Well, that's but, the, there, yeah. but people, I think this... this um, misunderestimate, is that the word? <laughs> misunderestimate the, um, I, the intellectual ability also. Because yeah. there's, I'm, I'm sure that there are speeches that Hamilton or Madison wrote for Washington. Yeah. But there are other letters that he wrote that he wrote himself. Absolutely. And they're also brilliant. Absolutely. They are brilliant. Yeah, that's, you know, it's, that's an interesting ongoing challenge of biographers, um, uh, even at the very earliest time, this argument, sort of who, who was writing Washington's words and what did that mean about his own mind? Um, yeah, and he, you know, it's just still such a stereotype that here, those of us who, you know, in Washington's library are, 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 are trying to break down, you know, that he's the kind of the dope of the founders. Oh, he's just no way. Man, you know, he's just oh. the guy on the spot who's the tallest no. one in the room, you know. John Adams and that horrible letter that he wrote to Benjamin Rush has has uh, poisoned people's minds with this notion of Washington as yes. just sort of good-looking oh, and tall. He's so thin-skinned. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I say to my yeah. students, thank God it was Washington. <laughs> yeah. If it had been Jefferson, then we wouldn't have had Hamilton. Mm. And if it had been Hamilton, we, we would have yeah. not had schools for kids. He just wanted people to work in mm. the factories to create this economic yeah. engine. Yeah. And John Adams was so prickly and thin-skinned. Yeah. Washington was the only one mm. who could, who had that the modesty and the stature to to bestow legitimacy on this new nation. Yeah, and I, well, and see, so I, I am convinced, though, that there are many, many Washingtons out there in American life today. I just would like to see them in political roles, you know, and like to see them. Uh, I think our system is such that it, uh, that kind of modesty and humility that he shows, I mean, you have to be a narcissist to run for political office and survive today. I mean, it's very difficult, uh, you know, to get the right traits, it seems to me. Absolutely. No, it's, it's very sad commentary, and we um, we need to keep up our American optimism and the word Absolutely. sure, <laughs> but uh, sometimes it, it, it looks like we have to work harder. Yeah, but we can do it. It's been wor there's been worse times. There's been civil wars. <clears throat> there's been many, many things that this society and their system of government has come through, um, but, but, it, but it all comes back to uh, uh, the education of the citizenry and how essential that is. So thank you for being a, an you, academic John. and a teacher for your career and all your great writings and sitting down with me here today and look forward to the great symposium we're going to have this weekend.
I'm looking forward to it too. It was uh, great chatting with you, Doug. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this week's discussion. The Washington Library looks forward to continuing these conversations about our early American history. Please visit mountvernon.org forward slash library to learn more about the library's resources and programs. And remember, Mount Vernon is open 365 days a year and looks forward to welcoming you. Thank you and we'll see you next week.